so the uh, philosophical or metaphysical presuppositions and both metaphysical, philosophical, and theological repercussions of the uh, evolutionary theory are many. And the history of uh, the discussion conversation on them is actually long, complex, and fascinating. What interests us today in particular uh, is the Thomistic, you may say Thomistic approach to the, the theory of evolution. So the question what we might learn or in what ways the classical Aristotelian Thomistic tradition might be helpful in our reflection on the theory of evolution. So I would uh, suggest or claim that uh, there are, there's a number of uh, particular aspects of this conversation where this classical Aristotelian tradition, uh, Thomistic tradition might be and is helpful. Uh, so I first begin with listing those uh, aspects of the conversation. First, we have a number of relevant and I would say crucial philosophical categories that come into equation when we think about evolutionary theory. For example, the, the, the definition or understanding of species, a very complex conversation in philosophy of biology today in reference to the theory of evolution. The question of the goal-directedness of uh, living systems, of living organisms, teleology. Again, another important aspect of uh, the conversation in reference to the theory of evolution. And uh, what goes in a way with uh, the question of whether there is goal-directedness in living creatures is also the question of the role and nature and understanding of chance. Uh, and also here within the context of evolutionary processes or changes. Then the entire question of what I call the metaphysics of evolutionary transitions. Biology describes it in biological terms, but we as philosophers reflect uh, metaphysically on uh, uh, evolutionary transformations. And here again, we can, I believe, learn from uh, the classical tradition. And then uh, moving towards theology, uh, exed, uh, interpretation and uh, exegesis of uh, the first chapter of Genesis. Obviously, this is something, there's, it's the, uh, this aspect of, of conversation where we can refer to St. Thomas Aquinas. And then uh, analysis of the theological status of evolutionary changes if they happen uh, in the universe, in, if they are true. So the question whether evolution is a part of divine creation, as many contemporary theologians who are in favor of accepting theory of evolution claim, or whether evolution is actually not a part of divine creation, but rather of divine governance of the universe. So I believe this is one of the actually crucial uh, aspects of the conversation in theological um, uh, terms that we can, uh, where we can learn from St. Thomas Aquinas. And then uh, another, very important uh, theological issue is the analysis or modeling that divine and creaturely action in evolutionary transformations, then search for the answer to the problem of natural physical evil within the context of evolutionary transitions, and eventually uh, the development of a plausible model of human speciation. So I believe in all these aspects, we can learn from uh, the classical Aristotelian Thomistic tradition. Obviously, this is a material for more than one uh, lecture, uh, cursory lecture during the uh, uh, regular uh, school uh, year. So I will concentrate today only 
on two aspects of uh, listed here. I will begin with the exegesis and interpretation of Genesis 1 because I thought it's, uh, well, I mean, the conversation in a way begins there, right, uh, for Christians. So it is important. And I believe that it is also uh, this aspect that it's, uh, it should be uh, available and accessible to all of us, uh, also for those who have not studied philosophy and theology. And then I will mention also some aspects of this uh, metaphysical, uh, this analysis of metaphysical um, uh, metaphysical aspects of biological uh, species transitions, okay? So Thomas Aquinas is obviously not the first one to think about and reflect and comment on uh, hexameron. Uh, we have heard uh, about that yesterday from uh, Father Thomas uh, Davenport. Uh, so we have to actually go back uh, to the beginning of uh, Christianity where uh, I would say uh, that the interpretation was mostly literal, actually, uh, of uh, the uh, of those six days in Genesis. Uh, we may uh, bring many examples. For example, Saint uh, Victorinus says God created all the mass to adorn His Majesty in six days, and He means six uh, twenty-four uh, hours long periods of time. Uh, we have a number of theologians over first three centuries or three and a half centuries of, uh, of uh, uh, the history of theology uh, in um, uh, of Christian theology, where again, the interpretation is more or less literal. So even though we have origin who uh, in the middle of, or at the beginning of the third uh, century suggests or proposes three senses of scripture, literal, moral, and spiritual. So he opens the way to more uh, spiritual, moral, and also allegorical interpretation of the scriptures. Uh, the predominant tendency is to interpret it uh, in a literal way. At the same time, we find those fathers of the church who, yes, speak directly of the six days as 24 hour periods, but they read closely Genesis and they reflect uh, upon it. And they claim that at the same time, they claim that uh, the universe as such was created instantaneously or ahead of time. They simply go to the opening verse of Genesis, which says, and in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. So they say, well, this is actual creation. In a way, what happens afterwards, well, they don't phrase it the way I do, but I think this is the, this is the idea that is being born in their uh, theological reflection. What happens afterwards is in a way, transformation of this already existing uh, mother. And then we have St. Cyprian uh, also in the third century, who is one of the first uh, theologians who propose what we nowadays call uh, the age day age uh, theory where uh, those days are expanded uh, to hundreds or thousands of years. But truly, uh, probably the most significant change uh, in the ancient Christianity in terms of interpretation of Genesis comes with Augustine's commentary, which was mentioned yesterday by uh, Father Thomas uh, Davenport. Uh, what is crucial for us in the context of evolutionary theory is what uh, Augustine introduces, and what he introduces is the concept of rationes seminales. But first, uh, he says this in his comment, the most mature commentary, which he finished around the year 415. 
He says this, God made everything together without any moments of time intervening. So this is his, again, interpretation of this first sentence in Genesis. Uh, and therefore, he says everything was created uh, instantaneously. And then we have those six days that follow this uh, uh, creation, uh, act, the act of creation. And then he says we should not think of those days as solar days. So he allows, even though this is a literally commentary on Genesis, he allows himself for an allegorical interpretation of some aspects uh, of this story. And this is one of uh, one example. What is crucial is um, he asks himself, himself a question. Okay, so if everything was created in the first uh, instance or was created instantaneously, then was everything there the way we know it or the way we see it today? And he comes to the conclusion, no. So he goes back uh, to the stoic idea of, uh, well, we translated in, in, to English this uh, category, seed principles or seminal notions uh, in Latin raciones seminales, in Greek logoi spermaticoi. So he claims that God has uh, hid in mother, uh, this first primordial mother, a potentiality for new things to emerge uh, on the course of the history of the universe. So he claims that God unfolds the generations which he laid upon, laid up in creation when he first founded it. In another uh, context of the same work, uh, in a, in a, in a, in another place, he says this, God created all creatures together whose visible forms he produces through the ages working even until now. So he says it in the fifth uh, century. Uh, so it's interesting. What are those raciones seminales? So he tries to reflect deeper on this concept. He says they are like principles whereby we grow old. Uh, even if we do not see it by another kind of knowledge, we conclude that there is in nature some hidden force by which latent forms are brought into view. So, there's, so this is this idea so that there are forms of living and also non-living uh, kinds uh, that are hidden in this primordial matter and they are they develop over time or are actualized over time there is indeed in seeds some likeness to what i'm describing so physical seeds is the analogy that he uses here but he says i want to say something deeper because those seminal notions are not physical seeds this is the potentiality that is hidden in uh, mother. So the seed principle of which he speaks is more basic uh, than physical seeds, since uh, those seed principles or this category comes before the familiar seeds that we know. So you can imagine that when the theory of evolution was formulated by Darwin, those Christians and Catholics who wanted to Mary, uh, evolutionary theory with uh, Christianity, they went immediately to St. Augustine and said, like, Augustine has, in a way, an evolutionary idea. So we ask a question, is Augustine's philosophy and theology therefore open to evolution? Well, we have to be careful here. There was a number who thought this way and argued this way, but in fact, Augustine does not hold that species can arise one from another. This is what Darwin says, right? He uh, acknowledges that there is 
uh, or he introduces gradualism to the development of the universe. But even though he does this, he should not be regarded as a precursor of the modern evolutionary theory. The other difficult questions that uh, come with when we reflect on his uh, theology, uh, metaphysically speaking, is the question of novelty of those unfolding natural kinds. Darwin wanted to say things that were not present in any way can come into existence, whereas for Augustine, those latent forms are somehow hidden in the primordial matter. And there is a long conversation among scholars whether what he means by latent forms, are they purely potential or are they to some extent actual but not visible? So he is unclear on this aspect. So, uh, and another crucial uh, aspect for, uh, for which Darwin would not like what Augustine does is that it seems that Augustine has an idea of fixed and limited number of potentialities that are hidden in this primordial matter, a sort of pre-established harmony. They can just act, be actualized and that's it. So everything is put uh, by God at the beginning and therefore, uh, the number of those possibilities is fairly, uh, well, it's simply limited. And then another difficult question is the question about the possibility or necessity even of direct divine intervention to actualize those uh, seed principles. So Augustine is not clear on this. Uh, he goes back and forth and ends up saying that they are actualized both spontaneously when physical circumstances are proper and through direct divine intervention. And he is not clear, he doesn't say whether that refers to all species or uh, maybe there are some that can be actualized naturally and some others that require this direct divine intervention. Obviously the idea of direct divine intervention is not something that uh, Darwin and those who followed him would like. And then comes Aquinas many centuries later uh, and Aquinas uh, Father Thomas Davenport mentioned this methodological principle that inspires him or that he actually presents and it inspires us. Uh, so I will just, I have it on slide, so I'll just repeat it. Uh, so where Thomas says that with the respect to the beginning of the world, something pertains to the substance of the faith, uh, namely that the world began to be by creation, but how and in what order this was done pertains to faith only incidentally insofar as it is treated in scripture. Now Aquinas says this precisely because he is aware of this history of interpretation of Genesis that I shortly uh, described or sketched uh, here uh, for you. So he is aware of the position taken by Augustine uh, and he sees it as the first uh, explanations which already tells us that even if Jesus is not biased, we can be biased and he's biased. Uh, he likes Augustine's interpretation. He says the first uh, of those uh, interpretations uh, held by Augustine is more subtle and it is better in the defense of scripture against the ridicule of unbelie unbelievers uh, because they observe the universe and they can see the pace of changes. So the idea that everything came into, uh, into existence in six days doesn't make sense to them. So he says, this is a proper interpretation if you want to address those who do not have faith in God yet. And then there is more literal interpretation. Uh, the second one, which is man maintained by the other saints 
And he says, it's easier to grasp for whom? For those who do not have time or energy or resources to study philosophy and theology. It is uh, in keeping with the surface meaning of the text. And he says, there is a space in the church to defend both of those approaches. And both, uh, both approaches are important. And he says, I will defend, he actually says, I will defend both of them. But then most, uh, what, mostly what he does is just he goes with Augustine. And uh, in a way, he doesn't introduce anything new, uh, but he is maybe more specific on some details of this idea that is introduced by Augustine. So when he reflects on the six days, well, first of all, uh, he speaks about the work of six days and not of about six days of creation, which is already important because he, again, is aware of the fact uh, that Opus Creationis, he distinguishes three parts of those six days. The first one is Opus Creationis, the work of creation, where uh, uh, he says what happens is the creation of this most primordial mother, and then the first step of distinction, distinction of uh, heaven and earth, and the distinction of elements. So he says in his commentary that uh, in the Bible, the Bible says only that God created uh, heaven and earth, and that the first distinction is the distinction of waters. Uh, so we have water and earth. And he says uh, that Moses most likely had in mind also fire and air. These are four elements uh, uh, for the ancient uh, philosophers. But he was uh, writing for uneducated people, so it, and it would have been difficult for them to understand that fire or earth are elements, because they would think elements must be you know, tangible. So, but he claims that uh, all four elements are being uh, uh, produced or, or, or distinguished uh, in this first day. What comes later is an actual opus distinction, is the work of distinction, where what comes is the distinction of earth, heaven, earth, and sea. So the heaven is being distinguished as well. And what is important, the production of plants. Aquinas speaks here about production and production uh, presupposes existence of some sort of matter. You produce from out of something. And uh, why does he say about, uh, uh, about plants within the work of distinction and not uh, within uh, the last step, which is the opus ornatus, uh, adornment of the universe with all beautiful plants, animals, and so forth. Well, ancients thought that plants were not living because they did not move. Now, Aquinas knows that they live because he's Aristotelian, but he simply follows the scripture. So he says, in the scripture, we have uh, the first step of the opus of uh, adornment uh, here. And the actual opus ornatus, the work of adornment, is the, again, production of celestial bodies and animals, and then creation of human beings. Why creation again? Because creation, because our souls are created ex nihilo. So in a way, only on the very beginning, we have creatio ex nihilo, creation ex nihilo, and then at the end, when human souls are created ex nihilo. The other aspects of this work of six days are production. Now, I uh, went to Aquinas and I checked on this, and he is not entirely consistent uh, in it. So you will find those places where he speaks about in terms of production, and you will find the places where he would speak um, about uh, uh, um, 
uh, he will speak creation about bringing plants and animals. So he's not entirely consistent, but, but I think it's meaningful. Uh, and you could argue that this might be the way he uh, actually understands this distinction between creatio and productio. Uh, so this is disputable, uh, I would uh, conclude, but, uh, but I think you can uh, tentatively at least build this argument that this is what uh, he means and this is how he understands this. And then he does use uh, Augustine's notion of rationes seminales in his interpretation of those, uh, this work of six days. So here are quotations, I put them together uh, to uh, uh, avoid bringing large blocks of text for you. So plants and trees might have been produced in their origin or causes, that is, the earth received the power to produce them. They were subsequently brought into existence in the work of propagation. Similar fishes and birds, they were produced by the nature of waters on that fifth day potentially, and animals whose production was potential as well. So he has he, even though he does not refer to this concept of rationes seminales in this particular uh, place where he uh, interprets Genesis one, but he does refer to uh, rationes to the concept of rationes seminales at several other places in his works. Uh, but it's clear that he just follows uh, Augustine here. So therefore, we may ask a question: Is there anything new in his interpretation of scripture? I would say. Not necessarily. Uh, he maybe is again, maybe somewhat more precise on some details, but uh, like Augustine or following Augustine, Aquinas does not hold that species can arise one from another. So yes, he accepts gradualism following Augustine, but this is not something, not, this is not the same as uh, modern evolutionary theory. But, uh, where he uh, gets, I think, more precise or strives to be more precise than Augustine is the question, trying to answer the question about the possibility or necessity of direct divine intervention in the actualization of those creatures, uh, new creatures. So uh, I will not get into details. I have written on this if you are interested, uh, so I can refer you to, because uh, I've done some research on it. Uh, so he is trying to, and, and he would say that some species can actualize, be actualized spontaneously when the proper physical conditions uh, are out there, but others will require direct divine <coughs> intervention. Now, where Aquinas, I think, becomes extremely helpful and actually changes the conversation, but not in the Middle Ages, but can open or change it for us today, is his metaphysics. Uh, for Aquinas, uh, following uh, uh, Aristotle, I believe, offers a notion of potentiality that, unlike the Augustine's notion of potentiality, allows for entirely new entities or species to come into existence on the course of history. So I think that his notion of potentiality offers us uh, a wide, virtually unlimited range of possible forms that can be instantiated. And if this is true, this is a game changer uh, in philosophical interpretation of evolutionary theory. So now I'm gonna go into metaphysics a little bit. Uh, so I will refer again to the notion of hylomorphism. For those of you who have not studied hylomorphism, uh, Aquinas distinguishes 
metaphysically speaking, trying to understand what things are. He says that each thing has essence, which says what this thing is and existence, the fact that this thing exists, okay? What interests us here uh, more at this point is essence. And essence is a metaphysical uh, composition of matter and form. But what is crucial here is that metaphysically speaking and strictly speaking, this is a composition of two metaphysical principles. So the matter of which I speak here is not a physical matter, but it is a metaphysical principle of potentiality, which is a pure possibility of there being something. I mean, we take it for granted, but philosophically speaking, this is a tremendously important thing or category, the possibility of there being something at all. And now, this possibility is being actualized in many various ways, and it is being actualized by substantial forms, which again are metaphysical principles now of actuality. Now, what is crucial uh, here is that based on this understanding of things, uh, based on a hylomorphic understanding of uh, what of essences of things, we uh, can speak or we can introduce the concept of disposition or preparation of primary matter to be actualized in a given way. So primary matter can be actualized in virtually any possible, logically possible way. It can be actualized by the form of a tree, of a dog, of a human being, of a rock, of whatever, uh, all logically possible things or substantial forms. When there is a substantial change where substance A ceases to be a substance A and becomes substance B, uh, let's say I take this bottle and I drink the water and then I burn this bottle, Burning this bottle would be a substantial change, a horrible one, because it's horrible for the environment. So I'm not going to do this. Uh, but uh, so what, what is important here is that primary matter that underlies this bottle will be actualized by new substantial form, the substantial form of ashes. Okay. Now, so this underlying primary matter, again, can be actualized by any substantial form. But the fact that it is actualized by <coughs> substantial form of plastic and accidental forms of its shape, hardness, and other uh, accidental features that this bottle has, the fact that this primary matter is actualized by this particular form of plastic bottle, this fact narrows the scope of potentialities of primary matter that may be actualized in the next substantial change. So when I burn this bottle, it will not turn into a butterfly. Theoretically speaking, if primary matter can be actualized by any form, it is possible, theoretically speaking. But the fact that it is a plastic bottle, when I, th this fact, uh, uh, is responsible for, 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 for another fact that when I, again, burn this bottle, it will not turn into a butterfly. So we may say that primary matter, even though in principle it can be actualized by any substantial form, when it is actualized by this form of uh, a plastic bottle, it is disposed or prepared uh, to be actualized by a narrowed scope of 
substantial forms in next substantial change. I have actually a better example, and which is more ecological. This is a wooden log. When you burn it, it turns into ash. And again, therefore, I would say that this potentiality uh, of this wooden log is relative because it depends on what this wooden log is. Uh, so underlying primary matter, again, is disposed to be actualized by certain types of substantial forms in the next substantial change, but not all of them. Uh, now, why is this important for the uh, understanding of evolutionary transitions? Uh, Aquinas would say, now I go to Aquinas, where he says this, from the things which are said, then it is evident, and this is his explanation of what primary matter and substantial forms are. He says, it is evident that there is one first matter. I would think that he means primary matter for all generable and corruptible things that underlies the fabric of the universe, pure potentiality of there being something, but different proper matters for different things. So for and a piece, a bit of ash to come into existence, there must be a proper matter, physical, tangible matter that precedes that, uh, that uh, you know, emergence of ash, right? So then Aquinas takes another step in another work where he says something extremely important. From the fact that matter is known to have a certain substantial mode of existing, of existing matter can be understood to receive accidents by which it becomes disposed to a higher perfection, to a new way of being actualized. Uh, and I believe that this, obviously Aquinas says this in a different context. He doesn't know the biology of Darwin, so he has no idea about evolutionary, evolutionary transitions. But I think what he says here allows us to think about natural kinds as evolving. So the underlying primary matter may be understood as being gradually disposed to be actualized by new forms, including new, uh, including substantial forms of new natural kinds. So my claim is that natural kinds may be classified as lineages of closely related organisms whose underlying primary matter is gradually disposed to be informed by novel and more perfect, well, this notion of perfection here is a very complex notion, but I will not go into it, more perfect substantial forms educed, drawn out from the potentiality of the primary matter that underlies those organisms. So again, trying to be a little bit more specific, we may think about a series of minor genetic and epigenetic changes which happen in actually existing and operating organisms within a lineage L1 of species S1. From the metaphysical point of view, those changes lead to the accumulation of minor phenotypic variations, accidental changes in the way organisms acts and reacts and functions in its ecological niche. That leads to gradual changes of the disposition of primary matter that underlies a set of organisms or line of organisms within this lineage L1. And that leads eventually to a particular 
moment where an egg and sperm in the moment of conception of uh, uh, that come from particular parents of, from, of, of coming from species as one, this primary matter is disposed properly to be actualized by substantial form of a new kind. And this substantial form is being educed from the potentiality that is of primary matter that underlies the fabric of the universe. So what is crucial here is that I believe, and this is what I suggest, we can speak about two levels of potentiality in this metaphysical system. Potentiality defined as a fundamental metaphysical principle of which I spoke here, this is primary matter. Again, it can be actualized by any substantial form. So this is the greatest possible freedom in terms of what types of beings can come into existence. But there is also another level of potentiality in this metaphysical system, which is a relative potentiality, right? Where primary matter is all, because primary matter is always actualized by some substantial form. We don't have floating primary matter. And the fact that it is always actualized by some substantial form, uh, makes it to be, in principle, again, totally open for any type of actualization, but in fact, open to a limited scope of possible actualizations. Now, from, an from the point of view of evolutionary transitions, this is crucial. We have this, because this two, those two levels of potentiality and uh, give or or can translate into, I believe, into the flexibility of the dynamic processes of nature, in nature, the way we understand them today in evolutionary theory. So we have this transition uh, from T1 to T2. So we have substantial, an organism that is actualized by substantial form SF1. And because this is an organism actualized by substantial form SF1, it cannot at this particular point in time, it cannot be actualized in the next substantial change, this, this primary matter that underlies it by substantial form of uh, the type two star, but only it can be actualized in next evolutionary transition, uh, let's say by substantial form of the type SF2, fine. But because what underlies those organisms is always pure potentiality of primary matter, we can argue that on the way of gradual changes with so many different factors predisposing primary matter in various ways, there may actually uh, come a time and a moment which is uh, here uh, marked on this uh, diagram, uh, uh, the transition from Tn to Tn plus one, where actually this primary matter is now disposed to be actualized by the substantial form of the type two star. So something that was not possible at this uh, transition from T1 to T2, after quite some time may be actually possible. So therefore we may think that again, all logically consistent uh, you know, uh, ways of existing uh, of animals uh, or all logically a consistent uh, and possible uh, types of organisms can come into existence. So my claim therefore is that Aristotelian Thomistic notion of potentiality 
does not therefore restrict possible life forms the way Augustine's understanding of potentiality did uh, to a fixed and limited set of natural kinds latent or dormant in secondary physical matter. So we are clear here also, uh, whereas uh, when we think about Augustine's notion of potentiality, I mentioned it to you that it's unclear how he understands those latent forms, whether they are purely potential or actual to some point. Here we have pure potentiality of primary matter that underlies uh, uh, all physical objects in, in nature. So there is no doubt uh, that uh, those substantial forms are educed from pure uh, potentiality. So therefore we can speak about the wide scope of possible life forms that goes along with the evolutionary theory. So this is, I think, one of the major contributions that we may take from uh, Aquinas and Aristotelian Thomistic system and enter the conversation with contemporary uh, philosophical interpretation and um, reflection on the theory of evolution. One last aspect that I would like to mention and that will uh, conclude my lecture here, going now back to theology, if you are tired with metaphysics uh, here, uh, actually Aquinas, uh, even though, as I said, uh, he doesn't have the idea of one species uh, changing into another species because he didn't have the biology uh, that we have today, he actually reflects and asks himself a question whether it is possible uh, that new species can come into existence. So not one from another, but new species in general, okay? And here we can enter a complex, uh, you know, uh, set of... Uh, quotations we can find in Aquinas where he speaks back and forth uh, in terms of the possibility of new species coming into existence. So in some circles of Thomists, you have actually this war on quotations, which I hate, uh, but I somehow entered it uh, in one of my articles, uh, trying to show uh, that you cannot actually do that and you cannot come with a you know, uh, final conclusion just going uh, to those quotations. But I think it's interesting for us uh, just to uh, see how he how he thought. So we, for example, he would say that uh, the perfection of the universe, uh, to the perfection of the universe, there can be added something daily with regard to the number of individuals, not however, with regard to the number of species. So this is an example of his, uh, uh, of his thought where it seems like new species, well, no, they cannot come into existence, everything. So it was extended in time, but it's in why it's rather dumb. But then there is a very interesting passage, oftentimes actually brought by those who work in uh, evolutionary uh, interpretation of evolutionary theory, where Aquinas says that, well, there can be new species actually. They come from uh, putrefaction uh, and also uh, they come from crossbreeding. And this is interesting because I think this is one of those moments where Aquinas this doesn't fit his theology at all in a way because the first it contradicts the first quotation, which I think for him is more important and it speaks more about his uh, approach to uh, the possibility of there being new species coming into existence. But what we find in the second quotation is what science of his day says. And Aquinas honors and uh, you know, follows and accepts the science of his days. And of his day, and he says, well, if science says this, then it somehow needs to fit within my philosophy and theology. And this is what he does. He's trying to fit it in, uh, and he says, well, if those uh, new species come into existence, now he goes back to Augustine, obviously, he says, they were present 
as those relaciones seminales, again, he doesn't mention the term, but they were present as relaciones seminales in those first six days. But this is important that he is open to the idea that there might be new species. Now, sometimes evolutionary theists, they, uh, they abuse this quotation and they claim, well, then you can argue new species can come into existence. I will be very careful because even if he says this, for him, it will be an unusual thing, not something that usually happens in, uh, in nature. Another quotation, more indirect uh, argument. The universe in its beginning was perfect as regards nature's causes, but not as regards all the, their effects. Well, you may speculate and say, well, so maybe, you know, new things may come into existence. Uh, an early work, earliest work of Aquinas, he never speaks in this way again, but he does uh, as a young uh, scholar. He says, the universe can be made better so that many other species would be created and thus God could have made in this way the universe better and can still do it. Seems like an opening for new species coming into existence. Uh, again, when he made things out of nothing, he did not make all at once he did not at once bring uh, them from nothingness to their ultimate natural perfection, but conferred on them at first an imperfect being and afterwards perfected them so that the world was brought gradually from nothingness to its ultimate perfection. Again, and you may build an indirect argument in favor of their uh, emergence of new species. I could bring many more uh, quotations, obviously, where he says that the number of species is uh, fixed in a way and it's, uh, and it's done. So this is just to, uh, to show you uh, like his reflection in his time on this question. That concludes uh, this lecture. I, again, addressed those two uh, aspects uh, mentioned here, uh, the exegesis and interpretation of Genesis 1 or, or underlined here. Uh, and the analysis of some metaphysical aspects of the biological species transitions. Uh, I think uh, that all of those aspects are important. And I actually uh, wrote on most of them and uh, I have an upcoming book uh, and, uh, that comes out of the number, a number of articles that I've written on this, especially the understanding of divine action in evolution. I think this is crucial and the status of evolutionary uh, transitions. This is actually uh, the latest article that I wrote when I go virtually against all contemporary evolutionary theists who claim that evolution is part of divine creation, creation and I think it's wrong. I think it's the part of divine governance of the universe. So if you are interested, uh, this is the list of the most important, uh, I can send you the PDF of the presentation. This is the list of the more important, more recent uh, publications on this topic of interpretation of evolutionary theory coming from Aristotelian Thomistic perspective. Um, and, uh, and if you are interested, uh, I have a longer bibliography on this topic and other topics in science and religion. Uh, I can also share it with you if you want. So uh, thank you very much and um, I'm...